This is episode 255 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. Listeners just like you can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to over 150 additional episodes of That Shakespeare Life not available on public listening platforms. Find all of these things when you sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Susie Edge, a medical doctor and historian and author of Mortal Monarchs, A Thousand Years of Royal Death. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. We actually have some evidence that what came to be known as the Lord Chamberlain's Men, its origins may have actually started in the 1560s when Henry Carey was first Baron Hunsdon and not Lord Chamberlain. At this time, whatever group he was patronizing was called Hunsdon's Men. And then later, of course, we know he became Lord Chamberlain of the household in the 1580s. In 1584, we see that we have a group now that's called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The Lord Chamberlain's Men is known as Shakespeare's Playing Company, and it was a group of actors for which Shakespeare wrote plays most of his career. By 1603, the Lord Chamberlain's Men were so popular that James I himself chose to patronize the company, making it the King's Men. Today, we're going to look at the man who made the company the Lord Chamberlain's Men, and that's Henry Carey, the first Lord Hudson and the Lord Chamberlain who patronized Lord Chamberlain's Men when it was founded by Elizabeth I in 1594. This week, we are delighted to welcome historian Stephanie Klein to the show to share with us about the life and history of Henry Carey and his role in the career of William Shakespeare. Stephanie Klein holds a Master of Studies degree in Modern British and European History from Mansfield College, University of Oxford. Since 2011, she has run the popular website, The Tudor Enthusiast, where she blogs about all things related to the Tudor dynasty. Her first historical biography, Edward VI, Henry VIII's Overshadowed Son, will be published by Pen and Sword Books later this year. She lives in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia with her husband and two young children. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. How was Henry Carey related to Elizabeth I? So that's the the million dollar question. At the very least, and I think probably the most likely, Henry Carey was Elizabeth I's cousin. So his mother was Mary Boleyn. Mary Boleyn was the sister of Anne Boleyn, who was Elizabeth I's mother. And Anne Boleyn was um, the second wife of Henry VIII. So According to history, at least according to the historical record, Henry Carey's parents were Mary Boleyn and William Carey, her first husband. But there has been kind of through time ever since Henry Carey's life, there has been a theory or a rumor that his father was actually Henry VIII, because we do know that for some period of time, 
Maryville and, and Henry VIII enjoyed some sort of a sexual relationship. Uh, the problem is we don't know very much about it. We don't know exactly when it started or how long it lasted. We think that it started sometime around Mary's wedding to William Carey. So that was in 1520. But we don't know, you know, was this a, an isolated event? Was it something that went on for a few years? We just can't know the details. Of it. Henry Carey wasn't born until 1526. So if you ask me, and I've written a blog post about this for my website, The Tudor Enthusiast, I think it's quite unlikely that Henry VIII was Henry Carey's father. But just want to throw that in there, that that's sort of, if you ever read anything about Henry Carey or you look him up, this question that comes up, think of a rumor. I think it's much more likely that he was just Elizabeth's cousin. <laughs> One of those tantalizing bits of history that we munch on for decades and decades and decades. Oh, absolutely. We love to think about, you know, illegitimate children of kings and, you know, the, the scandalous nature of their lives. And it certainly did have illegitimate children. I just, I personally don't think Henry Carey was one of them. Henry Carey served twice as a member of parliament and was made a baron by Elizabeth I, as well as being knighted and put in charge of Elizabeth's hawks used for the sport of hawking, which we know she was fond of. Stephanie, we know that knighthoods are granted as a result of one's service. So can you explain for us what Henry Carey did to get knighted? And besides later becoming Lord Chamberlain, what were Henry Carey's other political appointments during his lifetime? Sure. So to back up to sort of the early life of Henry Carey, he was sort of groomed actually for quite a successful life at court serving the crown. So actually, when he was two years old, his father, William Carey, died of sweating sickness. And this left his mother, Mary, in uh, financial straits. And the king at this time actually moved her two children, Catherine Carey and Henry Carey, into the wardship of Anne Boleyn, who was at the time sort of pursuing a relationship, a hopeful marriage with Henry VIII. And she was just in a much better position to give these two children the upbringing and the education that they would need to have a successful life and a successful career serving the king. So this is how Henry Carey was brought up. He was educated for this career and for this successful life. And at the time of Anne Boleyn's death in 1536, he was about 10 years old. And we have some evidence that he probably moved he potentially moved under the wardship at that point of the king himself because he was in the king's household in 1545 at the time of his marriage to Anne Morgan. And this is sort of where his career takes off. So he joins the army under John Dudley shortly after his marriage. John Dudley at the time was Lord Lyle, and he lauded Henry Carey as being a very, very capable soldier. This seems to be where he flourished. He described him as being one of the men who could most easily replace tired captains and soldiers. He also started a parliament career when he was only about 21. As you said, he served twice in parliament, once between 1547 and 1550, and then again between 1554 and 1555. So this is long before Queen Elizabeth came to the throne. He was already serving Tudor kings and Queens. He served well, he served under Mary I for a very short amount of time in Parliament. He served mostly between King Henry VIII and King Edward VI reigns. But we also have evidence that he was serving Elizabeth when she was only a princess. So about five years before she became queen, he apparently went to visit the Duke of Savoy on Elizabeth's behalf to come back and report on whether he would be a potentially good husband for her. 
you know, I say all of this to just kind of give the background and the context of how he was educated and how he served long before Elizabeth ever became queen. He had kind of served and proved his soul in a, in a manner of speaking by the time she was queen. He had proven he was he was definitely worthy of the knighthood at that time. He'd already had a very successful career for about 10 years. So yes, when she became queen in 1558, she knighted him almost immediately. And in January 1559, she made him first Baron Hunston. And this really just shows that she saw a lot in him. He was also, of course, as I said, her cousin. And we have some evidence that she was very generous to people who are very close to her and related to her. He also treated his sister Catherine very well while she was queen. So it's kind of no surprise that he was knighted and, and became titled very quickly after she became queen. Understanding his military background and his being lauded as a good soldier makes it make sense that when there was an uprising in England in 1569, Henry Carey was called upon to serve in opposition to this rebellion. What was his role in this event? And was he successful at what he was sent to do? Yeah, so this was called the Rising of the North, also called the Revolt of the Northern Earls, the Northern Rebellion. And this began in November 1569. It lasted until the following February. And this was basically an unsuccessful attempt to depose Queen Elizabeth in favor of her Catholic cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. This was instigated by three Northern noblemen, Thomas Howard, Charles Neville, and Thomas Percy. So Henry Carey, yes, as you say, as as he'd already proven himself on the battlefield, he was appointed lieutenant general of Queen Elizabeth's forces, and he was very successful doing this. In February, nearly 3,000 rebels ambushed Henry's army, and his army was only half half that size. And he and his men still managed to fend them off and claim victory. So they were part of the ending of this uprising and the queen's success. And she was so happy with him. Of course, this was reported back to her. And she was so happy and grateful to him and his wonderful work that she sent him a personal note, which referred to him lovingly as my Harry. And she called him the instrument of her glory and uh, told him that he had done much for honor. So that was a very successful time for him. What were the circumstances surrounding Henry Carey's appointment as Lord Chamberlain, which is where he comes into Shakespeare's life? Yeah, so among the great number of honorable posts that Henry Carey served in, especially following his victory in the Northern Rebellion, one of these was his appointment as Lord Chamberlain of the Household in 1585. And what this is, is essentially the most senior office of the royal household. There were three in early modern England that were kind of the the most prestigious positions in the household. That was the Lord Steward, the Master of Horse, and the Lord Chamberlain of the household. And so for him at this point, he would have overseen just about everything kind of above stairs as it relates to the monarch. So kind of all the rooms that she would have occupied in any of her courts, with the exception of the, the royal bedchamber, that would have been the designation of the groom of the stool. But he would have overseen ceremonies and entertainments, which is what we'll talk about. He managed staff and and kind of all the departments underneath him, uh, such as servants and physicians and personal security for the queen. He would have had authority over the chapel royal and the wardrobe, uh, as well as the, the crown jewels. So this was a very honorable post. And as you can imagine, it was a huge job. So continues to say a lot about Queen Elizabeth's high opinion of him and her trust in Henry Carey. 
So how does patronizing a playing company work in the 16th century? We know that Henry Carey came to be the patron of the Lord Chamberlain's men, but that that playing company was founded by Elizabeth I. So put these pieces together for those of us that might be uninitiated with this history of how it is that they're the Lord Chamberlain's men under Henry Carey instead of being Elizabeth's men. Why was she not the patron of this playing company? Sure. So... Elizabethan theater, this is sort of a time of major transition in the world of, of theater in early modern England. Kind of before this period, what we had was playing companies that were much more likely to be touring around the country or the region. And these playing companies made up of actors and writers, kind of everybody who produced these plays, they would play primarily in inns and taverns, and they were on right? They weren't very stable. They didn't have a home base. They might not have been very financially stable either. So what was sort of the norm for the time was noble patrons who would have an interest in entertainment and had an interest in the way that theater was sort of booming in the later half of the 16th century. They wanted to be able to provide their households with entertainment. Certainly somebody who was serving the queen or or the king, if it had been a king, would have taken a great interest in patronizing one of these playing companies to make them the most successful. And we see, again, this is a time of flux for, for theater, and it's growing significantly. If we look at the earlier part of the 16th century and even the medieval period, any plays that we're really seeing being performed are very much depicting biblical stories or their morality plays. They're really enforcing the concepts of good versus evil or right versus wrong. And in the later half of the 16th century, we're seeing the stories taking shape and the plays that are being written moving more towards, I guess, more creative stories. You know, we're seeing comedies and tragedies and romances, and and we're moving into that period where a lot more can be said in theater. And Certainly, there were many people who were very hostile to that, who thought that plays were becoming sinful and not worth watching. And there was some hostility in a Puritan culture that's arising. Innkeepers and and tavern workers were not always very welcoming to these troops of actors, right? The reason why we're starting to see, actually, in about 1576, we get a new theater that starts up by James Burbage called The Theater. And this is sort of the beginning of where we see these stable areas in London that pop up for playing companies that can prove themselves to be successful and financially competent. They can start playing in these in these theaters and they're not going to be so reliant on sort of traveling playing company model that had been so popular. So noble patrons made this possible. People like Henry Carey, who were in situations where he could very, very easily financially support and bring shareholders into this model to support a playing company and then share and split the funds. He was a perfect person to do this. So we actually have some evidence that what came to be known as the Lord Chamberlain's Men, its origins may have actually started in 1560s when Henry Carey was first Baron Hunsdon and not Laura Chamberlain. At this time, whatever group he was patronizing was called Hunsdon's men. And then later, of course, we know he became Lord Chamberlain of the household in the 1580s. In 1594, we see that we have a group now that's called the Lord Chamberlain's men. 
As you said, it was founded by Elizabeth I, who had a great interest in theater and really cared very deeply about providing quality entertainment to her court. And we have record from the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry on Henry Carey that he saw this as one of his chief duties as Lord Chamberlain to provide Elizabeth and her court with the greatest quality entertainment that the country could provide. So this absolutely fell into the umbrella of duties that he would have had in this prestigious post. And it actually is a, it shows just how popular and how successful this playing company was that at the time of Elizabeth's death and the accession of King James I in 1603, this moved from a noble patronage into a royal patronage and James I took it over and it became the King's Men. So that's kind of the history of of that group and and how noble patronage worked at the time. I think it speaks to how important theater companies and playing companies and entertainment really was in England for it to be one of the primary duties of one of the most prestigious positions in the royal court there to have this responsibility of seeing it as a real duty to bring this to the court system. That always impresses me about it. Not We think of entertainment as being optional or frivolous or some kind of extra, and I think it held a much more important role there for Elizabeth's lifetime, at least according to Henry Carey and and his thoughts on it. But the Lord Chamberlain's Men Playing Company, as you mentioned, was founded in 1594. And one year prior, in 1593, Henry Carey concluded an affair with Amelia Lanier, with whom he became pregnant and subsequently married off to her cousin. Stephanie, was there any public scandal over this relationship that Henry Carey had with Emilia and was his patronizing of the Lord Chamberlain's playing company the following year an attempt to kind of brush that under the rug in terms of his political reputation? Well, it's definitely possible. We know that that Henry Carey actually had, he had some illegitimate children. He also had a very successful marriage to um, a woman named Anne Morgan who he married in 1545, and he had a whopping 16 children with her, not all of whom survived infancy and childhood, but still, it's an insane number. He did begin an affair with Amelia, who at the time, her last name was Bassano, in 1587. And the sort of cringeworthy detail here is that she was probably around 18 years old at the time, and he was 61. So this is you know, looking at it from a modern lens, that's a little bit hard to swallow. But by contemporary accounts, this was actually a really happy relationship. It went on for about five years. And Amelia was was treated very well by Henry. He paid her a pension of 40 pounds a year. He lavished jewels and gifts on her. And apparently the queen, we even have record that the queen gifted her with jewels too. So she lived quite happily and quite comfortably in the care of Henry Carey. And she was also, it's worth noting that both of her parents had died at this time. So he was sort of a caretaker as well as a sexual partner for her. But in 1592, she became pregnant with his child. And this is sort of the the scandal that arose from that relationship. And he very quickly wanted to end the relationship and marry her off. So he wanted to legitimize that child, but of course he wouldn't marry her himself. He'd been happy married for a long time. And he married her off to her first cousin, Alfonso uh, Lanier. That appears to be where their relationship ended. Amelia 
gave birth to a son who she named Henry after his father the following year in 1593. She went on to have a very successful life. She became a successful poet in London, but her marriage to Alfonso was not a very happy one. I don't have really any evidence that there was a whole lot of public scandal regarding this relationship with the exception of the illegitimate child. I don't know that Henry Carey established the Lord Chamberlain's playing company in an attempt to return to better graces with the queen because I don't know that the queen was really upset about this situation, but it's totally possible. We know that Elizabeth famously had a fiery temper and if she wasn't happy with Henry Carey because of this relationship and because of the child, you know, we can certainly see how he might've done that. (laughs) It sounds like from what you're telling us about the culture of the time period, Henry Carey's behavior was sort of in line with what men of his position would have done and how they would have handled it. And it was just sort of a, I mean, it, it might not have been the same sort of situation we would think of today. And having come through America and the the 1940s and the 1950s when there were phrases like getting a woman, quote, in trouble and all of the aftermath of of things like that, that doesn't sound like that's what existed in, you know, 16th century London there. It was it was normal. And I hesitate to use that word, but it was it was at least common for men to have affairs on the side with multiple women and for them to get pregnant occasionally. And Henry Carey sounds like he was just handling it the way men of his station would have dealt with what was going on, as opposed to it being something scandalous, at least from the history you're sharing with us. That's how I lean on it. But you can correct me if I've gone in a way off base direction. No, absolutely. You're, you're spot on. I think Henry Carey was no different than any other nobleman of the time. You know, he had the the resources, the funds. He certainly had the lifestyle that any young woman who was not even just looking for a sexual partner, but honestly looking for stability and, and finances, you know, he kind of was, he fit the mold for exactly the kind of man that would be with a younger woman. And he wasn't doing anything that the majority of noblemen at the time weren't doing. So he actually, you know, based on what I've read about this relationship, I think he handled it really respectably for the times and he treated her very well. And yeah, I, th- I think that he was no different than anyone else in his position. We've followed Henry Carey from his beginning through his time serving Elizabeth and through his patronization of the Lord Chamberlain's men. I wonder if you could tell us about the end of Henry Carey's life. How did he die? And do we know where he's buried? Is that a place that can still be visited today? Absolutely. Yes. I have not seen what his cause of death was, but we do know that Henry Carey died on July 23rd, 1596, and he was uh, 70 years old. So that's a very respectable age for a Tudor man. He lived a good, long life. He died at Somerset House. He definitely died in the Queen's favor. As he lived in the Queen's favor, she was still very much, she still very much cared for him at the time of his death. And in fact, we do have a report that on his deathbed, Queen Elizabeth offered him the Earl of Wiltshire, which was a title that was held by their maternal grandfather, Thomas Boleyn. But apparently he replied to her, Madam, as you did not count me worthy of this honor in life, then I will account myself not worthy of it in death. So he refused the title of the Wiltshire. In any case, he died in her favor and she paid for his funeral and burial in St. John the Baptist's Chapel in Westminster Abbey. So he was buried on August 12th. And his tomb is actually the tallest in the entire abbey. It's about 36 feet high. It's very, very grand and lavish. 
It's made of alabaster and marble, and it's decorated with his heraldry. And it's definitely worth seeing if any of your listeners have the chance to visit Westminster Abbey. I have included a reference to the Westminster Abbey page that details his tomb and includes some really beautiful pictures of it. So definitely worth seeing. That just gives you a sense, if you've never been to Westminster Abbey, of just the immense size of this location, that a 36-foot monument could be erected inside this establishment there. So definitely worth worth seeing. And we'll place links, as Stephanie mentions, to the article she shares about Henry Carey's commemorations and things that you can see there at the Abbey in the show notes for today's episode, which brings me to my question about where we should look, Stephanie, when we want to explore the life of Henry Carey more in depth. We're all very interested in him now and find lots of interesting tidbits about who he was and his history and place in the life of William Shakespeare. Where should we go first if we want to learn more about him? Sure. So unfortunately, I've not come across any books that were written exclusively on the life of Henry Carey, as I would sort of expect not to. But um, I have included some some resources that I think are worth diving into. So there is a great short video by Claire Ridgway of the Anne Boleyn Files. She has a really great YouTube series called On This Day in Tudor History. And I think she has about a seven minute video where she details the life and death of Henry Carey. Um, And that's a really, really great stop if you just want sort of a quick, deep dive and an all-encompassing, very short biography of him in video format. I also think that the Westminster Abbey web that details Henry Carey's tomb is worth visiting. It also has a good little biography on his life. And then there are some articles written by historian Sarah Bryson on the life of Henry Carey, as well as the History of Parliament Online which is a a great go-to source for anyone that we know served in Parliament over the course of history. They've got a great long biography of him. And then anywhere that you can find a book written on Mary Boleyn. I know Alison Weir has a a good biography on Mary Boleyn, as do many other historians. And then any book that details the lives of Henry VIII's mistresses. I know of two, Amy Lysen. Anyone who writes about Henry VIII's mistresses will certainly mention Mary Boleyn and any mention of of Mary Boleyn will definitely also talk a little bit at least about Henry Carey. So those are at least some references to start with. Thank you so much for pointing us in the right direction. We will place links to these resources in the show notes for today's episode. So hang on until the end of the conversation to find the URL for where to find all of these. They'll be detailed out in a list so you can just click and go directly to where you would like to go when you want to explore the life of Henry Carey further. Now, Stephanie, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Oh, yes. This is such a hard question. There there are so many books that I would want to take, but because I'm on a Tudor podcast, I will keep it Tudor-specific, and I will say that uh, the book I would probably bring is written by Tracy Borman. It's called The Private Lives of the Tudors. And this book, I stumbled upon it last year, I think, during some research. And it's just, it's a, a book full of delicious behind the scenes details. Uh, the things that you won't read in kind of your normal history books about the lives of Tudor monarchs. This is sort of the more behind closed doors. What was life really like? And I think it's it's quite a long book. I haven't finished it yet. So I think there'd be plenty of time to pour over it and a lot of just a lot of time to digest these 
these really cool little tidbits that you just wonder. I don't even know how Tracy Borman could find out the things she wrote about. Some of it's just really, really interesting. So I think that would be my pick. Well, as fans of detailed tidbits of history ourselves, I think that is a perfect selection for your Desert Island book, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, this is a really exciting time for me, actually, because my first historical biography is actually just now available for pre-order by Pen and Sword Books UK. So I've written a biography on King Edward VI. It's called Edward VI, Henry VIII's Overshadowed Son. And I've been working on this for two years. I just got the pre-order link sent to me. So it's now officially on their website for pre-order and its official publication date is April 30th. So that's amazing. Congratulations. Gosh, that's such a wonderful time and so exciting. It's real and it's out there because I know that's a long process writing a book. That's that's wonderful news. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was a it was a very long journey to get here. I'm so excited that it's finally available. I can hold it in my hands. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fantastic. We'll place links to Stephanie's latest book here that so you can go and check that out and get your copy and read that. Stephanie Klein, thank you so much for being here today and walking us through the history of Henry Carey and helping us understand more about him and his place in the life of William Shakespeare. I appreciate you being here. No, oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a comment and a rating on the podcast platform you're listening from today. There are bonus history tidbits packed into the show notes for today's episode. The show notes are where you can see visual content that coordinates with the history you're learning about today, including portraits of the people we mentioned and some museum artifacts that support what you have heard on the show today, as well as more information about our guest and the resources that she recommends you check out. They're all listed out for you there in the show notes, so they're easy to navigate and find exactly what you need when you want to explore the topic we're talking about just a little bit further. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 255. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP255. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons who support the show are treated to behind-the-scenes extras, including sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked during an interview, as well as over 150 additional episodes of That Shakespeare Life that are not available on public listening platforms. The patronage of That Shakespeare Life is what powers our show and makes it possible for the show to be free to listen anywhere in the world. Join us as a patron today and unlock all the great bonuses at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life. <laughs>